Sci-Fi Diner Podcast, serving the latest news in sci-fi multimedia. And now your hosts, Scott and Miles. Your table is ready. They've long and This is the capital. We have a little problem with our entry sequence, so we may experience some slight turbulence and then explode. I got a bad feeling about this. Walter, put the cow away, would you? What is this place? It's a freak show. Welcome to the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast. This is episode 172B. I'm one of your hosts, Scott Herzog. Hello, I'm Miles P. McLaughlin. And tonight we're bringing you really the second part of... The episode 172B, which sure. ran very long as it was, mm-hmm. uh, we're bringing you an interview with uh, with GB Hajim. Is that my pronouncing? Sounds right? good. Yeah. Yep. And he is, I guess, really the chief uh, producer and animator behind this movie called Writer. Strange yeah. Frame. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, tell us just a little bit about this movie, Miles. Well, Strange Frame takes place uh, 300 years into the future. And um, it's a very stylistically animated um, movie with uh, some of uh, the who's who of many of our favorite uh, sci-fi genre uh, uh, TV shows uh, actors. Yeah, and who are some of the notables for us? Uh, George Takei, Claudia Black, uh, Alan Tudyk, Ron Glass, uh, just an Michael Dorn, Michael Dorn, uh, and um, uh, who, who could forget. Uh, it, Tim Curry, who was oh, yeah. lending his voice talents to um, uh, the Star Wars animated show, Clone Wars. Uh, yeah, and some great music. Yeah, um, some, some, some jazz, some rock and roll. You know, yeah. And so if you're really looking for a unique, stylized animation experience, this is, this is a movie that you really don't want to miss. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it is a bit on the fringe as far as norm, what we normally bring here in the Sci-Fi Diner podcast. It's a bit more... Fringe as far as content goes, mm-hmm. um, and as far as central characters, but not necessarily. It, it, but I think it's a movie that's well worth exploring. It, it is. It is definitely exploring themes in sci-fi that uh, we are very familiar with, um, as far as class systems and diversity. And, and what is the future? Mm-hmm. He, he made that comment where, when you're interviewing him that we kind of let slip, but the idea that in the future, you know, you can just go ahead and swap out your parts. Right. <laughs> you know, like, like who's to say that, you know, you say, well, I'm going to be female today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah, maybe things that we consider maybe on, a, on, on the subject of diversity will seem mainstream in the future. You just never know. Mm-hmm. You know, you think about what's happened in the past you know, 100, 200 years and how mm-hmm. that stuff has changed. Right. You just never know. Mm-hmm. And what we'll be capable of. You think about knee replacements and, you know, leg replacements and heart replacements, you know, who's, you know, that's almost second nature to get your knees replaced anyway. Without further ado, we're going to bring you our interview with GB Hajim from Strange Frame. Nothing is as dangerous as love. Playing music with you is so amazing. I 
We're delighted to be talking about a new exciting project that has been described as a punk version of Blade Runner by one of its voice talents. For tonight, we'll be talking with G.B. Hajim, an animator and writer-director and producer of Strange Frame. Mr. Hajim, welcome and thank you for taking time to talk with us on the Sci-Fi Diner podcast. Aloha, Miles, and aloha, Scott. Yeah, he, G.B. was taunting us from uh, Hawaii. That was, We're talking to him in Hawaii right now, and we're in like... Pennsylvania, which is such finicky weather right now, and tons right. of pollen and everything else. So we love you, GB, but <laughs> but just slightly jealous, <laughs> just just slightly, slightly. Mm-hmm. But anyways, so um, we, go ahead. Well, we do we do want to talk about Strange Frame, but um, I like to. I'm interested in how, how you got to be an animator and uh, what made you decide to uh, to pursue that. Well, I, I think that like a lot of kids, I, I played around with like claymation when I was a kid with an eight millimeter camera and, uh, you know, played around with that kind of stuff. And uh, when I went to college, I actually went to college to study astrophysics, uh-huh. but I kind of got moved over to the arts. And one of the things I liked playing with was animation, but I really started out as just an experimental filmmaker, and then when I went in my professional career, documentarian, because that's where the work was, um, after a short while in Hawaii, I got lucky, and uh, I started working with the Hawaiians. I learned how to speak Hawaiian, and they were developing educational materials for uh, their little kids to teach them how to speak Hawaiian and to practice Hawaiian. And so I kind of became the guy, the Sesame Street guy, for the Hawaiian community, and we produced a ton of animated shows in Hawaiian for the kids. Oh, that's awesome! So that's kind of how I got into it. Cool. Yeah. Oh, very good. So, doc. So, you went from documentaries into like children's shows, and now and then you got. And when you say animated, they were they were drawn animation shows, I assume. Well, it was a. Uh, you know, Strange Frame is in this cutout style. And when we started, when I started working in the Hawaiians, the only thing they had for videos for educational is that they would take their children books and they would just videotape the illustrations in the books and have somebody narrate the illustrations. Okay. And so when I started working with them, what I did is I took those books and I just cut them out. You know, I cut out all the, the parts of the illustrations and brought them into Photoshop and played with them so that I have a full background and full foreground. And started doing simple animation in the cutout style. And after 10 years of doing that, it just got more and more sophisticated. And then I started working on Strange Frame. We kept on upping the ante throughout that process as well. Yeah, and you can and definitely see that as, I've only ever seen, I've only seen the clips that you have available of Strange Frame. I haven't seen the movie yet. Uh, but the clips, you can definitely see that in. 
So what who what would you say your influences are in your animation? I mean, obviously this is part of that, the cutouts, bringing them from the children's books in. But what what would you say your influences are for your own animation and even your storytelling? I think um, uh, Ralph Bakshi and uh, Rene Lolo, who you probably know from Fantastic Planet, um, okay. those guys I think are a heavy influence on my animation style. I mean, I really admire Peter Chung and um, definitely I think that there's some element as far as color and lighting that I drew drew from him. Um, But those guys are the real big influences. I mean, Ralph Bakshi, you know, and he's the first one to really in American animation do something interesting for us adults, you know? And, uh, And then Heavy Metal, obviously that movie, that was, you know, growing up as a, as a teen, you know, young teen, heavy metal was like, that's what, that was the bomb back then. You know, there wasn't really anything else for us, you know? Right. So that kind of stuff. And then, uh, Bakshi's uh, movie, American pop, that's also right up the same alley, the colors and the backgrounds. I mean, you can see a lot of that in strange frame. Mm-hmm. Now, as far as science fiction influences, what would you say would that be you're setting strange frame? If uh, it's like, that's like 500 years into the future. What would you say some of your influences are from the sci-fi world things? Well, image-wise, I mean, the way I made the movie, I really... Shelley and I, who wrote it, uh, we read a lot of science fiction. And we feel like there's so much great literary science fiction out there. John Varley, Kim Stanley Robinson, William Gibson, um, all these great writers making these great ideas and... You know, looking at the future in, I think, a more realistic way than what we see from Hollywood. And there's so few films. Like recently, somebody asked me to guess right on their blog about, like, where, you know, science fiction gets the science right and the future right. And I can only come up with a handful of films, you know, like Gattaca. You know, there's, there's almost nothing out there. And so we wanted to do something that more reflected, like, what the sci-fi authors were talking about. And that's, you know... Why, a lot of people ask, you know, why lesbians? I'm like, why not? You know, hundreds of years into the future, you're going to be able to go down the corner store and sw- switch out your junk for something else, you know? <laughs> <laughs> why the heck not? You know, and it, it really, it doesn't make sense for it not to be that way. Mm. Um, and also, when we first started writing, we started researching about, like, protagonists and protagonists, uh, how they're portrayed. And, and it's almost always in science fiction, a white male. Um and, you know, it, that's limiting at one level. And I live in Hawaii. And so many people here, majority of people are like HAPA, like part this, part that. You know, like one of the women I worked with on a project before, she's half Filipino and half Guatemalan. You know, like extreme blends of all of humanity. And hundreds of years in the future, that's what we're going to get. But beyond that, like kind of limiting thing about just like Captain Kirkishness is that that – we found that most of these leads were men whose names started with J. You know, we just, that's how limited that Hollywood science fiction had gotten with their lead roles. You know, besides Malcolm Reynolds, you know, it's like Jean-Luc Picard, James T. Kirk, Jeffrey Sinclair, John Sheraton, you know, you know, uh, um, uh, Jack O'Neill, you know, just go down the list. It's all these J's. It's crazy. Well, that's, I, I've never thought about that before. Uh, a lot of our sci-fi heroes' names start with J. So if you want to have a successful TV series and have a successful main character, it has to start with a J. <laughs> yeah. or, now we know it. <laughs> well, you know, you also come from a background um, that 
that really has uh, some African influence, at least uh, not, maybe not background so much, but as far as teaching and knowledge base, does that play at all into Strange Frame at all? Um, are you talking about when I talk taught African film? I didn't even know that was out there on the web. Yeah, well, no, yeah, your African um, films, and I, even, an but, but even I, African literature, and I, was, I guess I was just looking stylized, even in some of the characters in Strange Frame, you can see a little bit of that influence. I guess I was maybe I was reading into it. Maybe that's not really what you were thinking, but I, I, I guess I saw a little bit of that in it. Well, I mean, it, that it might be at a subconscious level. I did, as an undergrad, I had the opportunity, a sociology professor was teaching a class about uh, African filmmaking and what Africans were doing. And I was a big film geek and I watched everything that everybody made and I really loved African film. And so she brought me on as a co-lecturer as an undergrad. And so I immersed myself in what Africans were making in the, the 60s and 70s. Um, so that might be a subconscious influence. But my co-writer, uh, Shelley Doty, she's an African-American lesbian. And so from her, it's just coming from who she is. Okay. So those influences might be because of that. Oh, then that's yeah. true, too. Well, please go ahead. P- tell us about the world of uh, Strange Frame. Uh, well, Strange Frame, like I said, that we try to base it on uh, more realistic view of the future where there has been hundreds of years of humanity coming together all the races are interblending and then as we move into space they're experimenting with genetic engineering and biomodification to make themselves more adapted to the jobs and situations they'd be out there you know so much of science fiction we look at um you know, visual science fiction. It's all about how humanity is going to go into space and reshape it in our image. But I think that the experience of going into space is going to really reshape us. And literary science fiction talks about that. You know, you, you have characters in books who have, like, foregone limbs because they just don't need them in zero gravity or, you know, um, attach themselves to machines and things like that. And we don't see that much of that on the big screen. So we wanted to really explore that idea that, you know, you get, you know, skin that's radiation resistant, or if you live in a cold place, why not grow some fur? Or if you're in zero gravity a lot, why not some wings, you know? So we experimented with some of those ideas. Um, I think we have the first space elevator of any science fiction film. And yet a lot, a lot of uh, scientists and sci-fi authors, they include space elevators because it really is the most economical way to get in space. It's not as dramatic as blasting off from a planet, no. but it's really kind of what our planet's going to be covered by. You know, we're going to have all around the equator, we'll probably have a bunch of space elevators. And then when we get onto lower gravity planets, it's going to be even easier to do those things. Um, so, you know, we, we incorporated a lot of science, but we did keep the old class war because I really believe that all the strife on our planet is about the rich people screwing the hell out of everybody else. And so <laughs> there's definitely that whole class war going on. You know, the film opens in a riot um, against debt slavery, which I think we're kind of in the middle of um, right now on a global scale. Um, and it's interesting because we wrote this way before the current economic crisis. So it was interesting to see that the uh, Arab Spring and a lot of these issues about um, uh, debt slavery and uh, that kind of thing coming out right when we were finishing the movie. So <laughs> I, I find that kind of sci-fi almost prophetic, I mean, um, of what, what the world might be like. So that, 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 that's cool. I was also thinking, you're talking about you know, humans doing genetically engineering. I saw that 
little bit explored in Ian Flux, um, where you had this woman who she didn't need feet, so she genetically altered her feet to be hand- she was she had four hands basically. So that that that's kind of cool. You're you're exploring that, uh, pushing uh, it out even further. Mm-hmm, yeah, yeah. In, in your story. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, you mentioned a little bit about the animation style of Strange Frame, and at least, at least maybe where that was maybe birthed from, just your background in uh, storytelling with children. But there, there is a very unique style and feel to it. Uh, what inspired, inspired you to kind of maybe stick with this style or, or, or be refine the style? And how would you describe it, maybe even especially to our listeners that may not be familiar with your work? Oh, God, it's really hard. <laughs> You know, it's, um, I think that one of the reviewers said it's kind of like an Indonesian um, uh, shadow dance with the puppets, you know, where they project the firelight behind the puppets. And there's always kind of this moving light across the characters. And I think that that kind of gives our characters dimensionality um, and makes them more lifelike when that's happening. Um, But yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's like a... uh, it's like a walk down the red light district in Amsterdam when you're stoned. I mean, that's the closest <laughs> thing I get to describe style. Um, why did I stick with this style? Well, a couple reasons. It's really economical. Um, you know, we we basically the animation of the movie, and you know, you know, not supposed to talk about budget, but you know, we animated the whole for under a million dollars, and I think that's really unheard of. Um, yeah. And Part of the reason why we did that is we couldn't raise much money for something like this. You can't, you know, for something that's so out of the box as far as story, protagonists, all that, you know, Hollywood's not going to touch it. Traditional funding sources are not going to touch it. So you have to find people that are really willing to uh, go out on a limb. And so, you know, you have to work within those budgets. But the other thing, even more importantly, is I wanted to show the world that we could do something here in Hawaii. I mean, I live in the middle of a rainforest. And the kids that grow up here, they got no opportunities and there's no jobs looking for the smart kids. And I wanted to do something with those kids that we could show the rest of the world that we could do something spectacular. And if we did CG, somebody would just take the idea that we did and just outsource it someplace else. You know, and that's what's happened. Um, if you look recently, all this video effects companies folding in Los Angeles um, because all the work's getting outsourced to um, other countries. And I wanted to do something where if they saw it, they basically have to come to us because it's based on the art more than on the technology. And um, the other thing, the other aspect of it, it's just plain fun to do it this way. You spend most of your time drawing and less time on the tech aspects of it. And that allows my artists and myself, who did a lot of the art, um, to be inspired all the time and always experimenting. So, you know, and I think that shows in it. And, you know, there's, you know, honestly, there's some things that don't work that well because it is a giant experiment. But um, the stuff that works is just phenomenally beautiful. You know, you're, you're working in a, a poor section. It sounds like, and training animators in that section. That and these people, did they help animate the film? Is that right? Yes, they actually they were my animators. I um, in 2005, I went around to the local high schools and local college and started looking at portfolios. And I took the most talented kids. And I put about 40 of them through an internship program. Out of that, eight of the best of them became the animators for the movie. That's awesome. I, I'm impressed how stylistic it is. I mean, you don't, that's, it's, I haven't seen anything like it before. So I, I think that's going to definitely, you know, 
Yeah, de- definitely. There's definitely uniqueness in the animation mm-hmm. of it. So now Hollywood may not have touched it, but but you brought together a, a who is who in, in genre sci-fi show actors to, to be your voice talents. Can you tell us some of the, the very familiar names you have and and uh, how you able to get them to join you on this project? Okay, well, um, I mean, obviously, everybody. What we found is that um, everybody knows Tim Curry, and when we first thought about casting Strange Frame, you know, Shelley and I dreamt about having Tim Curry involved, but he seemed like such a reach, such a far reach that we actually had kind of a thing. We didn't want somebody with a British accent to be the evil guy because it was so cliche. And then I remember when I had my meeting with Tim, he's like, do you want me to play with an American accent or with my accent? And I'm like, oh, man, I want, I want all of Tim Curry. I want your British accent. I want the full Tim Curry experience. <laughs> so um, it, it was it was a come true. And, and uh, the way we got our voice talent, and I'll go down the roster after I tell you about the how of it, is um, – from being in film school and from working on video and film and being a juror at different film festivals, I, you know, I, I've learned deeply that a terrible image can be saved by great sound, but crappy sound will destroy the most beautiful image, the greatest story. Crappy sound, for some reason, just distances the viewer. And so at the start of the project, I started talking to some of the best sound people in the business, and I begged around and um, I especially worked on some of the people that worked up at uh, Skywalker Ranch. And there was this one woman who won a couple of Academy Awards, and I thought she'd really like what we were doing. And she said, I like it, but I'm too busy. But you know who would really like it is Gary Rizzo. And Gary um, was working on a small film. You might have heard of it, Batman the Dark Knight. And... <laughs> Uh, he um, he watched uh, what we had done at that point, and he was just so jazzed and excited. He's like, "Oh, I'd so much rather be working on your movie than this." And it's not because you know um, Batman's not a cool movie and all that. It's just that when you have a hundred million dollar movie or two hundred million dollar movie, and they're spending a million dollars to mix it, um, he has no freedom. It's all been pre-planned and pre-controlled and there's really very little for him to experiment and have fun with and you know my film's so bizarre and wild that he knew that he was going to just be able to be you know a kid in a sandbox and just play and play and so he's really excited and when you have somebody like gary on board who basically does all the 100 to 200 million dollar movies and he subsequently won the academy award for inception and got nominated for batman um you know, when you have somebody like that on board, voice people whose sound is so important for it, they're like, wow, you have Gary? And so um, when I approached some voice directors um, and told them my Gary Rears on board, they got really excited. And then when I told them how we were working with these kids and, um, you know, the, from this really impoverished part of Hawaii and training them in animation and all that, and then the story on top of that, you know, these these animation voice talent people got really excited because you know they're so used to just only doing these kids stuff and it's kind of boring and everyone's all to do a video game which is story is usually not that great and um they got really excited and jamie thomason stepped up to the plate and um he's one of the top voice casting directors and voice directors in hollywood and he's basically worked with everyone so he said who do you want and he's like i can get anyone you know oh, and in nice. fact that the um 
script went across DiCaprio's desk and, and Leonardo was interested. But the role we have for him was small, number one. Number two, that even though he was willing to waive his fees, his whole like management agent entourage thing needed to get bought off. And that was way beyond our budget, you know. So, right. um, you know, Jamie Thomas really could get anyone wanted. And so um, we really got our dream cast. And mm. among those people, like Claudia Black plays the lead, um, and uh, George Takei plays the evil overlord who's Tim Curry's boss. Um, we have Ron Glass from Firefly playing the ship's captain, and Alan Tudyk plays the drummer, and Juliet Landau plays the voice of the computer, Bitsy, and uh, Cree Summer, who's an incredible voice actress who's been in everything from Rugrats to Drawn Together to Transformers. Um, and her buddy, Tara Strong, who is in the lead in My Little Pony <laughs> and oh, Rugrats nice. and Princess Mononoke. Uh, what's great about those two is like, yeah, you know, it's so great to like do, you know, something, you know, I mean, how often do you get to do a lesbian animated film, you know? So, so they were all excited. And Claudia Christian, of course, she was on board and, and, and I'm going to probably be working in the future with Claudia on a uh, live action feature in the near future. So, right. um, it was a great cast. And we also Dorn too. I can't forget him. Yeah. He can't forget Michael Dorn. <laughs> and, and there's this guy named uh, GB Hajim. He's in there too, but <laughs> yeah, so very cool. Very cool. That's that. And it is really a stellar cast. A- absolutely. You, you definitely have the, you know, of who's who of, <laughs> of some of our favorite, you know, sci-fi genre shows. Yeah, absolutely. There. Absolutely. I, I should have asked this before, but there's a lot of music. I mean, is there, is there a separate uh, soundtrack for um, Strange Frame? The distributor is not on board to do that. And right now I do not have the money to, you know, remix things for a right. uh, soundtrack release. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so um, if we get some good money in, then that will happen. I'm thinking about just giving away the soundtrack at some point if the money doesn't come through. Right. You know, just just the basically the the straight mix that we have that we made for the uh, the movie. Right. The, the, what, what I've heard of the music, it sounds great. Oh yeah, and you know we got a song from Pink Floyd. Yeah, and you have yeah you have Tim Curry singing a song for you. I mean that's you know uh, that, that's great stuff. Yeah, don't ask him about Rocky Horror. Never okay. ask about Rocky Horror. Luckily, my casting director said, "Don't ask him anything about Rocky Horror." <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, I I, I, I saw a, a special about Rocky Horror, and he the, he came up to the stage and he said uh, something to the effect, "I'm glad there are people that are sicker than me." <laughs> so <laughs> I was thinking, okay. <laughs> Uh, Something maybe he wants to forget. I don't know. <laughs> We're tired of. A Strange Frame has already won some awards. Can you tell us a little bit about how uh, Strange Frame has been received and how it's been kind of maybe recognized? Maybe those two. There's almost two questions there, but go for it. Well, we um, debuted in London at um, Sci-Fi London, which is the International Festival of Fantasy and Science Fiction in the UK, and. Uh, I was really super nervous. Um, I was lucky my distributor bought the airline ticket because I wouldn't have been able to afford to go at that point. been so broke from making the movie. Um, and I got there in a jet lag and walking around and looking at a couple movies that they were screening. And then my movie came up and we didn't sell out the theater. And I was really super nervous because of that. You know, I thought, oh, my God, we have to sell out. And um, But the audience received it really well. And then the reviews came in. And Twitch Film was the biggest, most extensive review, and it was like frigging send up accolades, send up kudos, accolade all over the place. Um, 
And it was such a great validation um, at that point. And it was so, it, it felt so good. And I thought that things would just explode after that. But filmmaking is a really slow, gradual process. You know, when you're on the outside, you think, you know, people get discovered or film gets discovered and things just explode and it's instant. And it's really been a long road. We went, we went next to, um, to Dragon Con. And we screened there, and a few hundred people showed up for that, and that was awesome. And we had some great questions, and, and another level of validation happened right at the beginning of the Q&A after the movie screened. Uh, the first woman who stood up and asked a question, she said, you know, um, I'm a lesbian. She's frigging crying, and you don't know what it means to me that you made this film. Thank you so much. You know, and that was a, like a whole other level of validation. And... So, and then, and then we were at the award ceremony and, and I was sitting there and, and, uh, when they called out that we'd won best feature film at Dragon Con, I, my mind was kind of blown. I had to go up and drink shot of tequila to even like speak at the podium because I wasn't expecting that at all. Cause it is such a weird film. And we had so much rejection before that, you know, we were rejected from all the main film festivals, you know, Toronto and Sundance and Berlin and all those, and we were even rejected from some gay and lesbian film festivals that said that lesbians won't come out for animation. Um, and it's just that's just not true. But it's hard when you're when uh, you're doing something so different. Uh, it's it's really hard to break through. And yet we've had 25 reviews in um, major publications, and all those all but three have been super positive. So. Um, I think that there's a level of validation there. The money hasn't come rolling in yet, but um, <laughs> this, this week uh, the film goes to con to the film market there, and my sales agent there has high hopes um, and has thrown a lot of money around promoting it. Um, so hopefully we do some good sales there, and uh, you know if we do really well, there'll definitely be a sequel. You know, I, I'm not waiting for that. I'm already in development on another film, hmm. but uh, yeah, we hope. Well, in the meantime, how, how can our listeners uh, view Strange Frame? Uh, it's on almost every platform. I, I mean, I highly recommend uh, getting the DVD, even though that doesn't make me the most money, because you pop it in a surround sound system, and the, you know your mind is just going to be blown from the sound. The music and the mix is just phenomenal. Um, but it's available on iTunes, Amazon On Demand, Vudu, Xbox, PlayStation, um, Distrify, which puts it out to a bunch of things. It's even on uh, pay, the pay channel on YouTube. You know, so it's it's really almost everywhere you can imagine. I saw that there's copies it on Target online. Um, I think you can get it through Walmart online. I don't shop there, but yeah, you can get it there. Copies um, go up on eBay everywhere from ten bucks to forty dollars, but you can get it on Amazon for fourteen. So. Um, you know, it's, it's available everywhere. And, and if you get it and you like it, please spread the word because we're not a Hollywood film. Nobody's out there buying ad space and, um, and product placement space. Um, it's all about word of mouth. Mm. And, and your website where they can go to find out more information about the film and maybe a little bit more about you? Uh, strangeframe.com. Uh, it has a link to the Amazon and I believe one of the streaming sites. Uh, but everybody knows how to Google things, so absolutely, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, we want to thank you so much for sitting down here at the Sci-Fi Diner and chatting uh, about you, about your work in animation, and uh, and about uh, and about a little bit about this uh, film that you have going on. 
Sunday one view. Oh, it's my pleasure. Appreciation here. Lots to catch up on the family side. I owe you big time for finding them. Never thought I'd be with my brothers again. With the war and all. Let me know when you arrive on Callisto. Sure thing. And recognition for giving me thanks to my Laura. She's sure to keep my base warm till I get back. on blocking our shot at those Europa lip-front scum? Not trying much anything. Just figuring how to keep the ship. Don't make me blast you out of the way! Listen up! Like to help you for sure, but truth is, I'm still working on how to steer. Just move! You got it. Just smash right into the sides of the ship. No time for backstory. Just say I've been on enough craptastic trips to know, huh? Just get everyone in these cans and I'll slow the spin, okay? Now! It's a brand new world from the last to the 
The Parsec Awards, those strange and compelling trophies for speculative fiction podcasting, came to earth in 2006 with powers and abilities far beyond those of normal awards. The Parsec Awards have been known to make you a better podcaster, so you can stand straighter, walk taller, and stop taking separate bubble baths in front of sunsets. So what would you pay for such an opportunity? Don't answer yet. Act now and nominate a podcast before May 27th, and you too can help a deserving podcaster turn his or her life around and win a Parsec Award. Go to ParsecAwards.com and nominate a deserving podcaster. Act now. Operators are standing by.